Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. To Face to Face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community and communities create social change. I'm David Peck and this is Face to Face. So the interview this week is with Peter Singer. That's Dr. Peter Singer. He has a book that has just been released called The Most Good You Can Do. Check this out. The inspiration for this book has come from all who practice effective altruism. You are living refutations of the cynics who say that human beings are just not capable of living as if the well-being of strangers 
really matters, close quote. That's from the introduction of Peter Singer's book, new book, The Most Good You Can Do. I was blown away by this interview. I couldn't believe that there we were on Skype, face-to-face. Peter was in Australia, and I was here in Toronto, and we were talking about his book. We were talking about altruism. We were talking about realism versus existentialism and philosophy and and doing the right thing and about his groundbreaking essays on uh, animal ethics. And um, one that you probably have heard of if you haven't read it, it's called Famine, Affluence and Morality, written back in the late 70s. Check it out. I think you're going to really enjoy this interview. It's going to go down as one of the classics on Face to Face. Well, welcome to Face to Face, and I cannot believe the interview that we have for you today. We're here with Dr. Uh, Peter Singer, who uh, I hope most of uh, our listeners know who that is, but he's been writing philosophy and um, ethical uh, writing for a good 35 years. I'm sure he's going to be able to uh, correct us on that, but I'm going to read his interview in a second. But first, I'd like to say um, uh, hello, and thanks for joining us, uh, Dr. Singer. Hi, David. It's good to be with you. So I, I got to tell everybody here just for a moment, I, I'm a little kind of uh, at the risk of sounding like I'm a little awestruck. I am honestly, having studied philosophy for 20 years of my life, I am uh, really thrilled to have Dr. Singer with us here today. So uh, I wanted him to know that. We've chatted a little bit offline, so uh, we're about to roll. Dr. Singer may be, quote, as the New Yorker calls him, the planet's most influential living philosopher. The Australian academic specializes in applied ethics, to which he takes a secular utilitarian approach. We're going to get back to that, uh, which basically is about minimizing suffering and maximizing well-being. He gained recognition in the 70s with his groundbreaking book, Animal Liberation, which questions society's tendency to put human needs above those of members of other species. And he draws fire from critics who object to his fascinating argument in favor of an obligation to help the global poor that sets the bar so high that it means we are all almost living unethically, close quote. I'm going to end it there. That's quite an intro from the TED Talk website that I um, gathered. He's... The professor of bioethics, uh, or was at the University Center for Human Values in Princeton. He's at the University of Melbourne Center for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics. We're going to have a great conversation. He's written on sanctifying human life, one world, and defense of animals, the way we eat, the life you can save. I hope everybody's getting a fairly crystal clear picture here, and we're hopefully going to talk a little bit today about the most good you can do. His new book that's coming out in a couple of weeks, and uh, we'll be chatting a little bit more about that. So. Wow. Um, Peter, amazing. Thank you so okay, much. Yeah, I've got a lot of expectations to live up to. <laughs> That's right. You should, yeah, exactly. So I'm going to go uh, back to your, your TED intro, and it's really interesting. You know, I teach a class in international development at Humber College here in Toronto, and you're joining us from Australia. So again, thanks for that. And um, we were talking about utilitarianism today, and perhaps it was me knowing that this was coming, um, our interview to get together uh, this evening. But can you tell us a, a little bit about that? I mean, you seem to almost speak about utilitarianism in a, an objective way, and my students just don't seem to have any time for that. Can you can you unpack that a little bit for us? Sure. Um, I mean, they're independent questions, right? You can be a utilitarian and a subjectivist about ethics, and some utilitarians, uh, my late friend Jack Smart was one of those. He said, um, look, 
my view is what I want to see is that everybody be as well off as possible, everybody including all sentient beings. I don't want to see any of them suffering. I would like to see them enjoying their lives. Uh, that's my preference. And I would encourage you to have the same preference, to share that preference, and to be a utilitarian on that basis. But if you don't, if you have a different set of preferences, fundamentally there's nothing I can say that you're wrong and I'm right. So that's a possibility. Uh, and if your students are subjectivists and it's too hard to persuade them that that's a mistake, you know, then they can still be utilitarians on that basis. Um, I think, though, that there is a role for reason to play in ethics. I don't think it's just a matter of saying this, this is what I like, that's what you like, you know, just like um, I like garlic and my salad dressings and you prefer your salad dressings without garlic. Um, uh, and generally, you know, when you listen to people talking about ethics, they don't just treat it like that. They don't just say it's a matter of taste. They do think it's important to argue about it. And most people would say, look, there are some things at least that are just wrong. And if somebody says torturing cats for fun is a great thing to do, um, they're making some kind of mistake. It's not just that they've got weird tastes different from mine. And I've, you know, after thinking about these questions for many years, and uh, this is not a, something that I have held all of my uh, career in ethics, I now think that it is a mistake. That is that um, there are some things that objectively are better than others. Uh, and uh, inflicting agony for no overriding reason is something that is objectively bad. And that's why torturing the cat is bad because the fact that you get a bit of fun out of it is not an overriding reason. It doesn't make up for the agony that the cat is suffering. Uh, and uh, you know, there are many other things, obviously, we can think of. I think it's pretty difficult to take the view that some of the atrocities that are happening, whether things like the, the Nazi Holocaust or some of the recent atrocities carried out by uh, the group that calls itself Islamic State, um, that that's just a matter of, well, they've got different tastes and that's not to my taste or something so of that you, sort. You, you said in your response that, you know, it's some people would think that it's important to argue about. I guess, are you suggesting... Um, that you know not all of these things are necessarily you know unequivocally clear and concise and some things need to be unpacked we need to talk about them and so can i sort of um you know take from that that you're looking for more dialogue on these issues you you want yes people i think to that's right um yeah sure there are certainly things that uh uh are not as straightforward as the idea that uh torturing cats for fun is wrong or, uh, you know, burning a prisoner alive as this Islamic State did with that Jordanian pilot, but, um, but that's okay. Um, those things seem to me to be pretty clear, but uh, there are certainly other things that are more up to dispute. Um, you raised the question that I've been writing about. Uh, um, how much are we obliged to do to help people who are less well off than we are? We here assuming that, you know, you're in Toronto, I'm in Melbourne, we're both living in reasonably affluent countries, we're middle class or better than middle class in, in those countries, and I imagine a lot of your listeners are in that category. So uh, um, if we give, let's say, 1% of our income to Oxfam or some other organization that's helping the global poor, have we met our obligations? Um, I'd say no. 
Uh, other people might say, yes, that's enough. Um, you know, and then you up it to 10%. Um, more people would say, well, that's pretty good. You know, you're doing well there. Other people might still say that's not enough. So, so there's a lot of questions like that where, yeah, there's no obvious answer. Uh, and also comparing another thing I discuss in, uh, in the, the new book, The Most Good You Can Do, is comparing somebody who gives money to, let's say, help build a new wing of an art gallery um, as compared to giving money to distribute bed nets in areas of Africa where there's a lot of malaria and kids die because they're not protected by bed nets. Um, so how do you compare those two things? That's uh, another question that's much more difficult than the ones we started with. Yeah, I mean, at, you know, on some level, I think at that point, it, it really does become quite difficult because for me, one of the things that I've, uh, I mean, one of the reasons I, I kind of got into this work in the first place was I took a course many years ago and I kind of, I came out of it, I think almost uh, weekly and asking the question, where can I do the most good? And, you know, as is it going to be as an academic? Is it going to be as a teacher? Is it is it as a, you know, I'm an electrician by trade. Um, is it in the construction industry building buildings for people or is it going to be, you know, in the, in the field of social justice working alongside other agencies, building capacity, et cetera? It's a pretty tough question to answer, it seems to me. I'm sorry, I just missed the, well, I was, was going to say, it's, 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 it's a pretty tough question to answer. Where can I do the most good? I mean, don't, don't, yeah. I mean, so many things pressing down on you, especially in our sort of white Western arrogant model that we all seem to, you know, at least you and I live in. Yes, um, that's a really a big question, of course. Where can I do the most good? And uh, it's, um, it's particularly you know, difficult when you're thinking about your whole career. Um, but one of the one of the things that uh, I want to do is encourage people not only to think about what what's the most good I could do with a donation I might have be able to give to a charity today, but especially if you're a younger person, uh, what kind of career will do the most good? And uh, those are questions that people are really only just starting to think about in uh, the kinds of terms that that we're discussing. And they're certainly not easy. And I've had a student who was a very good philosophy student at Princeton, um, one of the best, actually got the department's prize for the best senior thesis in his year, uh, was accepted to do graduate work in philosophy at the University of Oxford, which is mm. happens to be where I did my own graduate work and uh, obviously an outstanding place to study philosophy. And he turned it down um, because he thought that he could do more good not working as an academic. Um, in fact, his choice would also strike many people, probably many of your listeners, as a unusual choice because what he did was go to Wall Street. Um, he went to Wall Street so that he could earn a lot of money and therefore donate a lot of money to causes like the ones we mentioned, um, distributing bed nets in wow. Africa, for example. Wow. Um, and. Uh, and he's doing that, you know, he's giving six-figure sums to charity, and he thinks that that's doing more good than he would have been able to do as an academic. I wonder, you know, I wonder, Peter, how many how many people actually are able to do that. I've certainly heard that before, you know, I, you know I'd make a great rich guy, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I'm going to be able to do wonderful things for me and my family, but isn't it wonderful what I'll be able to do for others? But on some level... Uh, do, don't you think that that 
I mean, you know, the whole notion of corruption and, and, and obscene wealth, you know, unfettered capitalism, where, do, where does that come into play in all this? I think it comes into play as a danger that you have to be aware of. And, um, you know, there are some people probably who could not resist that temptation. Uh, and after living and working with people who, uh, you know, own penthouses in Tribeca and uh, drive Ferraris and so on, they would say, gee, I want a Ferrari too. Um, but uh, I don't think everybody's like that at all. I th and I've, I've known people who are, who are clearly not. I, I mean, I think uh, Matt, the guy I'm talking about, hasn't been there very long, a couple of years, three years maybe by now. Um, certainly not showing signs of that corruption yet. Um, and in fact, he's telling all his friends that, uh, you know, he's pledged to give at least half of his earnings away and um, he wants them to hold him to it. And uh, and if they see him driving a Ferrari, they should tell him he's a hypocrite. Um, so uh, I think he's um, he's doing fine. Um, I come across somebody who much older who'd been doing this, uh, you know, before anyone was talking about it and uh, made, ended up making, I can't remember, something around a hundred million uh, and has already given away 30 or 40 million of it and is planning to give away uh, the great majority of it uh, over the next decade. So, uh, you know, there are clearly people who can resist that corruption and, and still do an immense amount of good. Do you, do you see this um, as a uh, a theoretical trend that's occurring or is this also a practical thing? I mean, it sounds like it's a very practical um, sort of outpouring of people's, sh uh, of some sort of ideological shift, some sort of uh, thought process that folks are going through. My, my, in my community, what I see is, is a very isolated group of people who seem to be very concerned about what's going on in their own backyard, maybe not necessarily as concerned about what's happening in other places in the world. So, uh, is is this uh, you know you use the word trend? Yeah, um, I think it is a trend, and I think it is uh, it is practical. It is making a difference, and that's what's really exciting for me because I have been thinking about this philosophically for a long time, um, and uh, it's nice to see that some of the things that I wrote uh, again in the in the nineteen seventies, um, an article called "Famine, Affluence, and Morality" in particular. Uh, still getting cited by some of these people who are not just treating it as a theoretical matter, but are actually putting it into practice and living their lives in accordance with it. Uh, and it's exciting to see that spread and, and you know, having a real impact on uh, real people, you know, meaning that more kids get bed nets and don't get malaria, for example, something as, as practical as that. You wrote in a, um, a December uh, 2013 article in the Washington Post, you said that some Americans, uh, quote, may believe that they already do enough through their taxes to help poor people abroad. Polls consistently find, though, that Americans think we spend too much on foreign aid. But when asked how much should be spent, they suggest a figure that is many times more than we actually give. Close quote. That was from heartwarming causes are nice, but let's give to charity with our heads, which is a wonderful title. Yeah. So, well, I would. I mean, it is funny. You know, you had a chuckle in your voice when you wrote that. Yes. I mean, it is funny that people say we're giving too much aid, and then when you say how much should we give, you know, what proportion of the federal budget should be foreign aid, they say, oh, you know, maybe ten percent, or it's you know around one percent or something. Um, so yeah, it's funny, but it's also tragic, of course. I mean, because it means that American foreign aid is not a popular. You know, raising it is not a popular issue. It's it's actually. Even under Obama, who originally talked about raising it when he was a candidate, 
it's actually fallen slightly. Um, uh, it's you know pretty low in Canada too, of course, as you would know. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know this is tragic because there are lives that could be saved by more and better directed foreign aid, um, but it's not a political issue uh, because people are so ignorant. And it seems like this persists. I mean, these poll findings are not new. They they go back, um, I think, to the mid-90s. So we're talking about 20 years. There have been these poll findings. They, they keep getting repeated when people take the poll again. But nobody is really out there trying to educate the American public as to how little uh, how small a percentage of the federal budget actually goes on foreign aid? Which it's really tiny. Do you think? Do you think people are fundamentally good? I mean, and do you think they want to do good for the most part? Or you know, Paul Hawken in in uh, the Ecology of Commerce, who's all about climate change and the environment and so on. He's quite the you know free marketer who's bringing some of these these um, principles together in a in a you know trying to synthesize them. Talks about a single mom, child in her arms. Laundry, food in the oven. Somebody knocks on the door and says, "Hey, uh, can we talk about the environment?" And it's going to hell in a handbasket. And you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, Peter, but she closes the door in the guy's face. You know, I've got more mm-hmm. fundamental things to worry about today than whether or not children in Burkina Faso are dying of malaria. Yeah, um, you know that's understandable in in her circumstances. I guess she's got a kid to look after and. Uh, and she can't think about kids as strangers. But obviously there's lots of us who are not quite as uh, harassed as that by uh, the exigencies of daily life and uh, do have time to think about these things, including all of your listeners, unless they're doing the laundry and changing the baby while they're listening. I guess that's possible. Um, <laughs> Very possible. Uh, some of them will be, yeah. But, um, but you know, others are not. Um, uh and uh, if you're not, then you do have opportunities to think about these things. And, uh, you know, we need people to think about these these issues, uh, about the, the children elsewhere, and, of course, about climate change as well, because, uh, you know, the tragedy is that that uh, baby the single mum is looking after is going to grow up in a very different world from the world that uh, we grew up in. Uh, and, and in many respects, a worse world could be a much worse world if we don't very rapidly reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Would you say you're a bit of an existentialist then on some level, you know, the whole freedom, choice, responsibility? Uh, would you sort of play those cards in, in a conversation? No, I, I don't actually go for that. The, the whole existentialist sort of uh, language and mindset is a little bit foreign to me um, because, you know, it goes back to what we started talking about, existentialists sort of think, you know, well, ultimately this is a choice. You make one way or the other. There's no firm basis for it. Um, I don't want to just uh, make this kind of leap of commitment or uh, you know, talk about authenticity the way existentialists do. Um, I want us to really think about where we can do the most good because I think that that is something that is what we ought to be doing. And uh, you know, people will make choices that I think can be criticized. Um, and so uh, I want to have some some standards of judgment that existentialists are generally pretty loath to accept. Right. You say that um, in a in a chapter entitled "Living Modestly to Give More" in your new book that is soon to be released, "The Most Good You Can Do," um, coming out from uh, Yale Books. Check it out online. We'll have all the links on the site as well. But you say, "quote Effective altruism is something for people of many divergent backgrounds and for people who." 
while living in affluent societies earn no more and sometimes even less than the average income in their society, they can, by giving, say, 10% of their income to effective charities, save lives or restore sight or in other ways make a huge difference to the lives of people who may be living on an income that is in the purchasing power, the equivalent of as little of 1% or 2% of the median income in the United States. All that to say, we have a lot of privilege here in this part of the world. Yeah. Are we kind of... Are we tossing that to the wayside? Are we... You know, I mean, when, you know, I hear, I, you know, I mean, I don't know how this connects, but it does. I'm in the tuk-tuk driving from my hotel in Phnom Penh to the airport. I was in Cambodia recently on a, uh, doing some work and a yellow Ferrari drives by me in the city of Phnom Penh. And on one hand yeah. you go, wow, good for you. <laughs> you know, you apparently really made it. And we're in one of the poorer countries in the world where in about 10 or 15 minutes or less, I can be in a community where people are making about 65 to 70 cents a day. And I look around and I see the gap and the disparity. And I don't know, I wonder, and Peter, I wonder about generosity. And, and, and maybe for you, and help me out here, but would you say it's, it is for a certain group of people and not necessarily for others? This isn't necessarily for everyone. Well, I mean, not everyone is going to do this, but um, as I say, if you have the ability to do it, um, you're not sort of stretched for every dollar you've got, um, then I think you ought to be doing it. And you know, I don't know anything about the guy who drove past you in the yellow Ferrari, obviously. Um, I don't know whether he got that money honestly or corruptly. I mean, that can be a problem. Um, I don't know whether... Uh, although he likes to flaunt the Ferrari, he does uh, lots of good with other money that he's earning, um, employing lots of people and paying them better and giving them better conditions than the typical Cambodian worker, or whether it's just the opposite. He's, he's screwed them harder, and that's how he got the money. So, you know, you really need to have a little context, a little background to know what to think. Um, I'm not really troubled by the idea that some people should get wealthy, Um but it does depend on what they then do with their wealth, you know. Um, it's it's a good thing, uh, turns out, that Bill Gates and Warren Buffett got to be very wealthy because um, they are using the bulk of their wealth um, to help some of the poorest people in the world. And if they hadn't, they wouldn't be able to do that. And now you could say, well, you know, that's kind of still a bad system. We ought to tax people more and then the government should be doing it, would be fairer, uh, you know, if we were more like let's say, uh, Sweden or Norway or somewhere where we had much more, much higher rate of foreign aid and actually pretty effective departments looking after the foreign aid um, and, uh, and higher rates of taxation. Yeah, but, you know, at least in the, for the United States, that's just not foreseeable in the near future. It's not, not going to happen. Um, doesn't seem like Canada is really heading in that direction either at the moment, nor is Australia where I am. Um, so I think we've got to do the best we can under the circumstances. And, um, and that means, you know, encouraging people with money to use it, uh, well and effectively in altruistic ways. So for you, part of this then really, I mean, obviously it's kind of a silly question, I suppose, in some way you've spent your life writing and teaching and so on, but you are about, it seems to me, incremental change. 
you're about planting these seeds that will hopefully you know be watered and, and nurtured over time that will affect people's thinking and their understanding of what it means to have an impact to do, to, to do good capital G yeah that's right I guess I'm a realist um, and you know I've also as, as you said in your intro I've been thinking and writing about this area for a long time um, I, I grew up in the 60s and 70s when uh, I guess I along with a lot of others uh, hoped that the radical student movement was really going to dramatically change the world um, it didn't really happen um, the world proved more resilient or you could say the capitalist system proved more resilient um, but uh, despite that I, I'm not a pessimist I have seen a lot of incremental change um, you mentioned also my earlier book animal liberation and uh, you know again we didn't have a total revolution it's not like the whole world went vegan but um, uh, we certainly have had some improvements in animal welfare. Uh, we've got more people being vegetarian and vegan. In fact, you know, in the 1970s, if you said, I'm a vegan to somebody, they would say, what does that mean? You're yeah. from the Constellation Vega? Um, you know, they had no idea what it meant. So um, so we've, we've, we've made headway, and I think that uh, we can continue to make headway in uh, a number of these areas. Um, John Wesley said, and I think I saw it, I, I just got your book today, by the way, and I'll just plug that again, uh, The Most Good You Can Do by Peter Singer. Um, and you, I think, uh, as I was flipping through it, I think I saw a quote by Wesley. And so I dug up the quote, uh, quote, do all the good you can, can, you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you, as ever you can. A bit of a mouthful in a way, but very clever. Um, is that is that utilitarianism in a nutshell? Yeah, I suppose it is really. I never thought of John Wesley as a utilitarian, um, but <laughs> right. he was sort of like a forerunner of effective altruism. Um, now, of course, you don't have to be a utilitarian to be an effective altruist, but um, but if you're a utilitarian, you probably will want to be an effective altruist. Um, yeah, uh, a utilitarian would not have just said people. A utilitarian would have said sentient beings or something because utilitarians are pretty clear that the suffering of animals counts but I, I imagine john wesley would have been clear about that too if you'd picked him up on it and said hey you really only mean people do you think it doesn't matter about whether animals suffer my sense is that uh, and i don't know the man's thought well enough uh, to know if this is there's probably things he said about this but uh, i'm pretty sure that animals count too so so effective altruism, is it, you know, having spent a few years now in working in development, you know, writing proposals, uh, looking at causal logic models, uh, trying to connect, uh, you know, activities and inputs with outputs and, and impact statements, is it, is it, and I'm, I mean kind of facetious, I suppose, in a way, but at the same time also realistic in the sense that I, I get why these things work and why they're important, is, is the conversation to some degree about efficacy? Is it about, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of it is about efficacy. Yeah, if 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 things don't work, then we shouldn't keep funding them. Um, but of course, what it's initially about is what you might say expected efficacy or expected utility, um, because sometimes it's worth funding something that only has a relatively small chance of succeeding mm. if the payoff will be really big if it succeeds, and you don't know if it's going to succeed until you try. So what we need to do is to be very transparent 
uh, about what we're doing and very rigorous about evaluating it. That's really what the, the efficacy is about. So, so we ought to support charities that are transparent and that are prepared to have really good evaluations of what they do, independent, outside uh, evaluations, if possible, randomized controlled trials of uh, you know what works, because we discover all sorts of amazing things that way, you know, um, that we would not have known before. If you ask people, for example, what would do more to um, help kids get kids in poor countries, let's say in East Africa, get through school and uh, succeed at school? Um, should we put more teachers in the classroom per student? Should we provide better teaching materials? Or should we give them tablets to remove intestinal worms? Well, probably, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, look, put more teachers in the classroom. Turns out that it's actually much more effective, much more cost effective to deworm the kids. Um, that is a, is a bigger factor in their success in schooling, probably because the worms, though they don't kill them, um, you know, reduce their energy and their attentiveness and, and so on. So, you know, we couldn't find that out if we didn't do um, proper controlled trials where, you know, some in some villages we deworm them and in other villages we put teachers in front, more teachers in front of them, things of that sort. As a philosopher, you know, I, you know, the, the unexamined life not worth living, um, you know, digging deeper, going beyond scratching the surface. For, for me, some of the, the poor needs assessments that I've seen over the years or the poor logic models that I've seen really come down to asking better questions, it seems to me, on, on as a development worker. And so I try to teach my students that, you know, there, there aren't these objective sort of black and white definitions. So we'll talk about what the notion of sustainable development is. We'll unpack it. And as a group, we've got a, two boards full of what this might actually mean in practice, and in print, um, and then we might pull up the OECD definition, and they're very different. And I'll say to the class, which one do you like better? And mm -hmm. you know, yeah. which, what's more comprehensive? What's more robust? What's so? Is that? I mean, is that too? What I mean, obviously, as a philosopher, I mean, it's a silly question again. But but is that really what we need to be doing? At, at pulling back and saying and encouraging others to go a little deeper. Yeah, um, and what we need to be doing is is helping people, some people, to go deeper. Right? We don't all need to do this individually, um, and we can't. We can't all run these trials of different things. We can't all stop and reflect on uh, all of the questions that are raised. But what we need to do is to get some people going in different directions on all these sorts of things, evaluating charities, looking at the fundamental concepts of what's going to work and what's not going to work, considering things that you can't run trials on and making estimates of whether they're good value, um, looking at our fundamental goals and the philosophical arguments. And then we need to make all that available. And, you know, that's one way in which the, uh, the, the online world is fantastic for uh, making this information readily available to a wide audience. And that's, you know, some of these things couldn't have happened 20 years ago. Hey, just before we wrap up, believe it or not, we've been on the online for almost 30 minutes here chatting. And again, many thanks. What, where do you sit on the power of storytelling with regard to um, informing, educating, advocating, instilling, you know, and planting seeds? So is it, is it about the, the essay, Famine, Affluence, and Morality? Uh, is it about the theory? Is it about that, the argument? Or is it also about that one-on-one, face-to-face -on -one contact with others saying, hey, you got to hear about the work that I do in Cambodia? Well, um, undoubtedly, the kind of the more theoretical stuff, the uh, assessment 
uh, is has got a somewhat limited audience. Not everybody is uh, ready or willing to take that in. And uh, so you do have to reach other people. And storytelling is something that grabs people's attention in a way that tables of statistics um, is not going to do so. So it clearly plays an important role. But um, the problem is that it, it can be misleading because often it will appeal to if you like, you know, emotionally tug on the heartstrings and you will feel for this one person perhaps who is the focus of the story and then you won't ask questions about, uh, well, how much was spent on this particular case to help this person uh, and what else could that money have done? So, you know, for example, I've, I've in the book I criticise uh, the charity called Make-A-Wish, this foundation that... Um, helps sick kids in the US, often kids who are terminally ill with cancer, and uh, they say, you know, well, what's your wish? So, example, I talk about, we've got a lot of publicity, as a kid said, I want to be Superman for a day. So the foundation arranged for him to be travel around in the Batmobile with uh, Superman or something like that. Maybe it was Batman, sorry, it was Batman, not Superman, yeah. Um, uh, travel around in the Batmobile, dressed up as Bat-Kid and uh, arrest uh, the criminal and, and so on. <laughs> Um, so, you know, it's great. The kid had a good day. But, um, but it, and, and Make-A-Wish won't say how much it, it cost that mm. particular occasion. But, but it says on average it costs $7,500 to satisfy a kid's wish. Well, $7,500 could save a kid's life, maybe the lives of several kids in developing countries. And if you say, what's better, to save a kid's life or to have a dying kid have one great happy day, um, I think most people would think it's better to save the kid's life. Well. Um, thank you so much for the time. Uh, I, I feel like we I often will say with guests that we're just we're barely scratching the surface here. It uh, it's wonderful that you've uh, taken the time to join me today. So please, everyone, check out um, uh, Dr. Singer's new book, uh, "The Most Good You Can Do," subtitled "How Effective Altruism Is Changing Ideas About Living Ethically." I'm going to just close off here with a quote from a. A New York Times piece that I think was uh, published in 2013 where uh, Dr. Singer wrote, quote, thinking about which fields offer the most positive impact for your time and money is still in its infancy. But with more effective altruists researching the issues, we are starting to see real progress. Uh, close quote. I, I think that's a pretty hopeful note to end on. Um, Good. Yeah. yeah. I think, it's, I, think I, I am genuinely hopeful that we are making good progress in the right direction. Well, thank you so much for joining me here today, uh, Dr. Singer, and perhaps uh, in the future we can ex extend the conversation. Be happy to do that. It's been great talking to you, David. Thanks. Bye.